Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the carbon tax fight is heading to court. Hamilton City staff apparently were resent the friction report on the Red Hill Valley Parkway at least two times in the last few years. And also, there are concerns surrounding the cuts to legal aid funding in the Ontario government's new budget. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The carbon tax fight is heading to the courts today. The Ontario PC government has uh, denounced the carbon tax, as you know. Uh, Doug Ford calls it the worst tax ever. Says it's probably going to cause a recession, although just uh, every economist that was asked said that's uh, has no basis in fact at all. Anyway, uh, they call it a tax grab. And it's just going to drive up prices. The federal government says, look it, this is all about climate change and, and this is our responsibility. So you've got some pretty strong arguments, I suppose, on either side. Uh, but it's going to be a four-day hearing in front of the uh, Ontario Appeals Court, so in front of judges. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Keith Brooks. Keith is the Program Director for Environmental Defense. Uh, Keith, first of all, thank you for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let me get right up front. Let me ask you the question I think a lot of people are asking and uh, and, and maybe not really sure what the answer is. Is, is this really a, a legal jurisdiction battle here, or is this really just political grandstanding? Well, uh, it is before the courts, so I guess they must have deemed there is some legal basis for challenging this. But, uh, yeah, I think it's actually a political uh, battle. It's really about, uh, you know, one government versus the other. And about political ideology. Yeah, I'm not even sure that it's necessarily about ideology. I mean, the Ontario government says they know climate change is happening. They they talk about the severe impacts from extreme weather, flooding, you know, fires, etc., uh, they're just saying we don't want to put a price on carbon. We don't like the way that the federal government is dealing with this. But carbon pricing is actually a conservative idea. Well, yeah, we've talked about that on the program. Uh, this this is actually something that was formed from the conservative government. Uh, I, I don't know where along the road here it's all of a sudden fell out of favor with conservatives. Uh, even uh, you know, I- as we're leading towards the the provincial election, Patrick Brown was still the leader. He embraced this and said, "Look, it's not my favorite idea." But it's going to be a revenue generator for the province, and it was in part of his people's guarantee. Of course, that got tossed in a blue bin when Doug Ford became leader. Um, but he seems to have hopped back and forth on this issue, too, Keith. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, Patrick Brown, when he was leader of the, of the Progressive Conservatives, was in favor of carbon attacks. Uh, all of his caucus was in favor as well. All those people are, you know, in cabinet now as well. So, you know, they've kind of flip-flopped on this. But, yeah, it's a conservative idea. It, it's a market-based approach to addressing climate change. It's what economists say is the most cost-effective way to do it. It's a fair way to do it. And, you know, you make a point about revenue. Patrick Brown's plan and even the federal government's plan is not a revenue generator for, for the government, right? All of the money, well, in, in, in this Kansas case, 90% of the money that's raised from the carbon price is going back to families. The average family is going to be left better off. So this is not about making money. In fact, this is just about making some things more expensive, other things less expensive. It's about shifting behavior. Isn't that something that would take the wind out of the, the province's argument then that it is a tax grab? If it's not, it's not going to the government coffers. It's going right back into the into the people's pockets. Well, that's right, and it's not uh, even being considered as a tax right now. So that's what the province is saying. It's an unconstitutional tax. First of all, the federal government does have the powers of taxation. That's that's known to be in the constitution. But no one's even arguing that this is a tax at this point. It's it's a levy. It's a charge on on, uh, and it's meant to change behavior to get people to reduce their emissions, to reduce the amount of fuel that they use. So no one's actually even arguing that. It, well, the federal government's not even arguing that it is a tax. It's it's interesting, and, and again, we can delve right into the rabbit hole here and get really legal ease about this. But just people's heads are going to spin. 
But in, in what I've seen, the, the documentation I've seen, how they're going to present their case, meaning the province in this particular situation, they acknowledge the fact that the federal government has the authority to levy a, a, a tax like this. They just think it's a tax grab. So it, it says, it's as if they're saying, okay, yeah, you can do this. We just don't like it. Uh, it's, that's a rather hollow, really legal argument, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's you know, I mean, I think it's a, p- a political battle, really, and I, I think it's one that Ontario is very likely to lose. I think Saskatchewan's likely to to lose it. Um, the federal government, you know, probably has has powers here. Our argument, though, is that climate change is such a threat uh, to us, and that all governments need the power to act on you know important issues, issues of national significance like climate change. Uh, and I think that uh, you know we'll see what the judges have to say, but I think. Pretty, pretty sure that Ontario is going to lose in this. And I, one of the messages we want to send is actually, can you stop wasting our tax dollars fighting a climate change solution? And can you actually just focus on fighting climate change itself? Well, $30 million is what they've allocated. That's the provincial government, the Ford government. Uh, now, I don't know how much of that's going to happen, if that's an indicator as well, that even if they lose this battle, they may take it to a higher court. But uh, he seems to be relentless on this, but he's relentless on this with our tax dollars. That, that's right. And the tax dollars are not going just to the court battle now but also towards an advertising campaign, and it's, and it's a misleading advertising campaign that talks about, well, maybe you saw these stickers they're going to want on gas pumps now, right? Our tax dollars are paying for that, and those stickers are misleading because they do talk about how much fuel is going to go up, but they don't talk about the rebate that's coming back to people and the fact that families are left better off. So it's, it's really upsetting. Our tax dollars are going towards fighting the federal government in court. It's a political battle, not really a legal battle. They're fighting a climate change solution. They're misleading Ontarians, and all with our own money. By the way, when those tickers do appear, and, and yeah, we're paying that for that with our tax dollars, uh, one of the things that will be omitted on that sticker, as we talked about on the program last week, Keith, is the amount of provincial tax in each liter of gasoline, which, by the way, yeah. is far and above uh, what any carbon tax would have imposed. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it was just like a week before that, that the provincial government was proudly announcing all of the projects that they were funding with the provincial gas tax, right? So and dollars, etc. Yeah, there's kind of a double standard at play here. Absolutely, yeah. So where, where do we go on a situation like this? I mean, in the meantime, this is going on. It's happening. Uh, anybody who's filed their income tax so far is, uh, I'm, I guess, aware of the fact that uh, you can apply for the carbon tax rebate this year, even though it hasn't actually gone into effect until April. You can uh, apply it to last year's taxes. Yeah. Uh, there's another area to this, too, that I think we need to discuss, and I'm sure this is going to come up in the proceedings, Keith. Uh, this is this is not just a, a whim by somebody. This is the carbon taxing idea is something that's been implemented in other parts of the world and other parts of this country, yeah. uh, and and it seems to be effective. Yeah, I mean BC has had a carbon tax uh, yeah, for ten years, right? And it's been a successful program for them. Yeah, the analysis that has all shown that BC has reduced emissions while their economy has remained very strong. They haven't lost any jobs. Like nothing bad has happened in, in British Columbia. In fact the province is, is booming and, and, and one of the provinces that's leading economic growth here in Canada. And, you know, Alberta also has a carbon tax in place. Ontario, we did have a cap-and-trade system in place. Quebec has had cap-and-trade since 2012. And if you look at the year 2017, those four provinces, B.C., Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, were the four provinces with the strongest economic growth. So we know, we know it's not hurting the economy. We know it's working. In fact, B.C.'s example has held up the world over, like The Economist magazine, the World Economic Forum, the OECD all praise it as, you know, one of the best carbon tax, uh, one of the best climate change actions in, in the world because it's so fair, because it's effective, because it's not hurting the economy. 
Well, and the uh, the Economist, of course, is hardly a left wing publication. I mean, they, they they're looking at dollars and cents all the time. So you've got to add some yeah. credibility to what they're saying. And and I saw somebody on on social media being dismissive of the VC situation. Said, yeah, well, that was the the Liberal government. Uh, the Liberal Party in in British Columbia is is a lot like the Liberal Party in Quebec. It's far more right wing than than you might think of, of the traditional Liberal Party. It's really a small C conservative party out there. So. Uh, the fact that Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark were on on side with this, obviously because they looked at the books and said, hey, it's working. Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think you're right. I mean, Gordon Campbell, by all accounts, would be considered to be a, a small-c conservative, not not a, a liberal government, not a you know, left-leaning government, a right-leaning government. And that's why I'm saying these, you know, carbon pricing, carbon taxes, the carbon levy, whatever you want to call it, it is a conservative idea. It came from conservatives. You know, it's, it's a very market-based approach. It's about using the economy. It's about sending price signals. You know, it's not a heavy-handed regulatory approach. Um, it's, it's not anything like that. It's, so it's, it's, this fight is not even really about ideology. It's about, you know, brinkmanship and, and you know, who's, who's, uh, who can rally, you know, the public more or something like that. Well, even Preston Manning has weighed in on this, and uh, you know, obviously from the Reform Party, and uh, he suggested, as a matter of fact, in a, in a letter that he wrote, an op-ed piece he wrote last week, uh, to both Doug Ford and to to the Saskatchewan Premier Mo out there as well, suggesting knock off the the all the stuff about the carbon tax. Uh, this, he says, I'm not crazy about the way the Liberals are doing it, but it is a, a a very very strong idea, and it is something that we need to consider. So when you're getting conservative voices like this. Uh, that are saying, look, back off, you're, you're going down the wrong road here. You have to ask yourself, what's the motivation? Why are they continuing to do this? Yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, other conservatives that are that are in favor of, of, of carbon pricing as well. I mean, you have, you know, conservative uh, or, or right-leaning governments in other parts of the world, in, in Germany, for example, where they're taking climate change very seriously. I mean, in other places, you know, this isn't a political issue. It's unfortunate that it is here. And I think Preston Manning has been arguing for a long time that, you know, conservatives need to, you know, embrace the environment, understand that they need to do good things for the environment. And, you know, if they get that, which Ontario, the Ontario government says they do, right? They say climate change is real. Climate change is happening. It's costing us billions of dollars from the fires we had here last year, from the floods we, we've had, maybe getting this spring again, uh, from, you know, the hurricane that, that hit down in, uh, or the tornado rail that hit down in, in Ottawa, all these events that are expected to get worse. It's costing us a lot of money. In fact, everyone that studies it says not dealing with climate change is more costly than dealing with it. So we have to face up to it. And if we're going to do that, carbon pricing is the most cost-effective way. It's the most economy-friendly way. It's the most conservative way to do it. Let's let's talk a little bit about the conservative plan, the progressive conservative plan that uh, that they unveiled just before Christmas last year, uh, which they say is the, their viable alternative to what the, the federal government is imposing here. Uh, basically, what it is, and I, I, I'll paraphrase, they're really just setting up a big, huge fund, a big pile of money, and they say, look, at if any of these polluting businesses decide that they want to do something to try to reduce their emissions, uh, we'll give you some of that money. Uh, but is that really a motivation for the for the industries and for everyone else to to get on side with this? Well, you have to worry about a program like that, and you might get what's called free ridership, right? Somebody was planning on doing something anyway, and now they can get some money from the go- from the government to pay for them to do it. So they're no longer, you know, it's it's called free free riding. And and also, what it leads to is some of those you know, like the the easiest emissions reductions are the ones that we go at first, right? And those are the things that you know companies should just be doing on their own. A lot of those things, in fact, save companies money because when you reduce your emissions, mostly you're doing that because you're using less fuel. Fuel's expensive. You, you buy less fuel, it costs you less money, you actually save money through energy efficiency. So those are the things that companies should be doing. They should be doing it in response to a carbon price that makes fuel costs more expensive, right? 
uh, and not be getting kind of handouts from government to say, here, we're going to help you now do this thing that is in your own best interest and you should be doing anyway. Instead, what government needs to be doing is, is helping you know, unlock other emissions reductions, things that are harder to do, not the really easy things to do. Um, but also, if you looked at the budget, we're not even sure now with, if this fund is going to happen uh, because the language says uh, that it, you know, if this says they're fighting the federal government in, in, in court and you know, that they would set up an emissions reductions fund that could fund these kinds of things. So it doesn't actually say that it will and shall. It says it could and would. That's a bit a bit problematic. So, in other words, they they have a, a a theoretical plan. They don't actually have a plan that they could put on the table and say, "Here, we won. Now we're going to do this." Well, I mean, the, none of they say they have a plan. None of the plan has been implemented. There's no laws, no regulations, no actual policies in place to do anything right now. And it seems to be that they're waiting on finishing the plan until this court case gets completed, which is going to take some time, right? I mean, because. We're going to get a hearing out of Saskatchewan and Ontario, maybe not for a few months, and then I'm, it's almost certain it's going to be appealed. So we're probably going to have this court case hanging over us for years. Is the Ontario government going to actually move forward with their plan for big emitters before that? It's hard to say. The budget definitely does not commit them to doing that. But overall, the plan you know, has a bunch of measures in there. None of these measures have, have any you know, rigor behind them. Uh, they haven't been costed out. Nobody has done the math on the emissions reductions. They kind of just threw a bunch of things together and tweaked it so that it would look like Ontario has a plan to reduce emissions by, you know, 30%, which is the federal target. Uh, but the plan has no substance to it. It has no depth. It doesn't stand up. This is really, I guess, almost a two-pronged argument that they're having here. I mean, this obviously we're going to have some uh, debate here about about the uh, the efficacy of carbon taxing in general, and I'm sure obviously there's interveners on both sides that are going to be speaking over the next uh, three or four days on this situation. But if the basis for all of this, Keith, is that look, we just don't well, like taxes, we don't have, like tax increases. That's that's a whole different argument. And if the court were to give any cred- credibility to that, uh, somebody'd be before the courts all the time. Anytime, anytime, any government, federal or provincial, decides there's going to be a tax increase. I guess yeah, they could be for sure. It just it just seems a rather specious argument to suggest that uh, that you know there's some credibility to what these guys are doing. The problem, as you say, is it's going to take time for this, and it's a matter of how far down the road they want to go. Uh, there are those that are predicting this may go all the way to the Supreme Court. I think that that's very likely, yeah. And and so in the meantime, you know, we've already said it, but the government is wasting our money fighting this in court. They're wasting time that we don't have, too, right? And we know climate change is hitting us hard. Uh, studies came out a couple weeks ago saying Canada's warming twice as fast as other parts of the world. Uh, as I've already said, it's costing us billions of dollars every year in damages caused by floods, fires. The scientists at the IPCC tell us we have, you know, 12 years to take drastic action to reduce our emissions, you know, as much as we can. And in Canada, we're actually in a really good position to do that. You know, we've already gotten off coal-fired electricity. Uh, we can electrify our transportation. Like, we can move to electric cars. We can reduce emissions in all kinds of ways in, can- in Canada. We're in a really good position because we have a really clean supply of electricity, and we have a lot of other assets. Plus, we're a wealthy, developed country, so we, c- we should be leading on this issue. But instead, uh, we're dragging our heels. We're, we're, one government's fighting the other. We're wasting money. We're wasting time we don't have. We should be, instead of fighting each other, the governments should be fighting climate change together. Keith, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. We'll be watching closely over the next few days to see how this rolls out in that Toronto courtroom. We'll talk soon. All right. Yes, thanks for having me. Take care. Keith Brooks, of course, uh, Program Director with Environmental Defense. Uh, and we'll, we will keep an eye on what's going on here. A lot of reaction to this, though. Uh, I'll email at bkelly900chml.com. Uh, it says, hey, Bill, I drive it every day to Mississauga for Hamilton. 
I can tell you for sure the rebate is not enough to cover the carbon tax that I'm paying on gasoline. It's causing me to look for work closer to Hamilton. So definitely the carbon tax does affect behavior. Alain, thank you for the email. Uh, and that's what they're supposed to do. I mean, the, the government's quite upfront about that. They're saying, yeah, it is going to make cause people to make some changes about their lifestyle, about what they're doing. And that has worked in other jurisdictions. And that's one of the arguments that they're going to present in this uh, case in Toronto. We'll see whether or not the uh, the panel of judges agrees or disagrees with them. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, city of Hamilton staff uh, apparently were resent this friction report. This is a very controversial friction report uh, to do with the Red Hill Valley Parkway at least two times. This is uh, as a result of uh, freedom of information requests by the Hamilton spectators. A piece in uh, today's spec from uh, Nicole O'Reilly that uh, outlines uh, what these uh, email chains uh, that they've uncovered seem to indicate. Joining us to try to dissect this and analyze this is uh, John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer here in town. John, how are you doing this morning? Just fine, Bill. Highway to hell, that was subtle. <laughs> it seems that way. Uh, who knew after all that? Yeah. Listen, what, I, I, I'm getting very confused at what to make of this right now. I mean, you know, at first uh, somebody said, well, look, this is a gross incompetence by city staff. Uh, now it looks like it might be oversight. I know that there's going to be a review on this, but th- this information that's coming forth right now, is, is it clarifying stuff or muddying the waters? Well, it's certainly not clarifying. Uh, I, I think, you know, if you sort of, with, with what we know, and of course there's a lot that, that hasn't come out yet, <clears throat> there's all kinds of things going on, and I think it, it has partly to do with just the the overall size and complexity of uh, some of these city departments. I was just looking at, uh, for instance, we're talking about the trade wind study. Now, yeah. that was the one in 2013 that, that specifically dealt with friction issues on the uh, Red Hill Expressway. Now, that was done, trade wind was actually a subcontractor to the uh, multinational huge engineering company, Golder, Associates. So 2013, you got Golder Associates uh, ordering friction testing. But at the same time, there's another major engineering firm, uh, CIMA Canada, in, uh, involved, and, and they're conducting a safety review of, of the Red Hill Valley. Uh, so you've got two major engineering construction consulting firms both doing work and uh, on the same section of road and and there doesn't appear to be any coordination between them because uh, the SEMA company, CIMA, they in 2015 they say uh, because of the high proportion of wet surface condition collisions the city should consider undertaking pavement friction testing. Well that was done two years earlier with Tradewind and Goldner so you know, you, you've got a lot of consultants uh, doing uh, a lot of studies here, and there does not appear to be any coordination, certainly between them. Uh, there may have been a central figure in the city that was that was sort of collating all this information, but uh, very strange uh, that you you would have conducted friction testing, and yet two years later another consultant comes along and recommends that you do it, obviously unaware that had already been done. So those are the kind of things that I think uh, just add to the head-scratching. But when that occurs, and, and according to, to the piece in the paper today, that, that's seemingly the, the chain of events here. Uh, when, when that second company said, you know what, you should really do friction testing, why wouldn't somebody in that department put their hand up and say, we already did, here's the report? 
can't answer that. Uh, the the only thought, and you know, there's another possible player here. We're trying to assign motives, and we really don't have enough information to even begin to do that. But there's there's one other department in the city that sometimes plays a role in some of these things, and that's called risk management. And their job is to minimize risk of lawsuits, particularly. And you now I doubt very much if you'd be able to successfully FOI their internal documents because it certainly would almost certainly be uh, deemed to be you know legal advice and that sort of thing. But you almost wonder here if what's happening is was an attempt at at sort of quietly tamping down uh, the risk here. Um, the other one, the other note that I would make on this whole issue is in. Uh, we we know that the Red Hill uh, Expressway was scheduled for repaving. Uh, so the question is, okay, when did that staff report appear? Um, and I dug through as much as I could, and I and I asked city uh, clerk staff and others. We can't find a staff report that recommends that paving be done. It may be there, but I haven't been able to find it. So. You, you fast forward to 2017, December of 2017, Council is now looking at the capital budget for the coming year, and just popping onto that capital budget is $13 million over two years to repave the road. Uh, but there, And throughout all those discussions, um, and I, I watched the, thank God for those TV um, uh, airings of all these committee meetings, because you can actually listen and see, hear what people were saying at mm-hmm. the time. No comment whatsoever, like an 800-pound gorilla in the room. They're talking, you know, counselors are talking about, well, why can't, why are we spending so much money on a police van, and uh, can I get, you know, Upper Paradise Road paved sooner? And so they're talking about all this sort of, you know, smaller stuff. And staring them in the face is this $13 million repaving that nobody even discusses. So it makes you wonder, is it something that was discussed in a, in a closed-door meeting on the grounds of uh, possible legal implications? Did they all know? Did some of them know? Did nobody know and they were just stupid? You know, it, it really... <laughs> There's a lot of just a lot of questions. Well, and I guess one of the things that keeps, as in my mind, as a constant thread through this whole thing, somebody at city staff knew about this report, and and uh, and even if they didn't agree with it, uh, I, I think there's probably at least some responsibility there to present it to council. And and instead, what they got was a report that basically said, and not only is everything fine, everything exceeds expectations. Yet there was one report that said that's not the case. And 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 I, I and when that happens, I mean that should send up a red flag. Even if you want, don't want to believe it, you should at least say, "Look at compare these two, and let's have a discussion about that." I'm not certain. I I can't say I'm comfortable saying that some of this information wasn't shared with some at least some members of council. I I can't imagine staff uh, going out on a limb like this, um, you know, uh, suppressing reports or at least not releasing reports. Uh, critical, uh, you know, something where where there, there clearly was going to be the uh, the danger of significant litigation. I just can't imagine that this didn't get discussed somewhere. And again, uh, because of the legal implications, it, it could clearly have been handled in an in-camera session of GIC or somewhere else. But when you see councillors sitting there passing a budget without comment for thirteen million dollars worth of paving, uh, they either knew 
what was going on, or or they just were <laughs> terribly blind to what was the largest item on that capital budget. Well, and listen, we're going down the road of speculation. I get that, but if I that guess, yeah. if that were the case, John. Then, then whoever was on that council at the time has been misleading the public because their story is that they didn't know anything about this until it became a, a, a newsworthy item a few months ago. Well, and and you know uh, you have to take them at their word. I mean, I you know I can't. I'm not making the accusation. I'm just saying I find it very difficult to believe that at least somebody on council wouldn't have had a sense that this was going on. Uh, th- this is way too big to my mind for a single member of staff to be just shouldering, carrying this around with them, the burden of this knowledge. It, it, I find it highly improbable, but we'll find out, I guess, when the, uh, when the investigation is finally uh, com- concluded. Oh, one of the uh, the elements that's included here in the timeline is uh, apparently at some point Mike Beck, who was the senior project manager for the city's engineering section, uh, apparently uh, was talking to somebody at Golders, and I'm just trying to pick this apart here, uh, who mentioned the Tradewind Scientific Report. Uh, at that time, apparently, Mr. Beck said he had not seen it or heard of it. So the staff member asked uh, that the, for- the report be forwarded to this guy the next day. Uh, he said he looked at it, apparently, and said it was not relevant to the work he was doing and just filed it away for future reference. If he read the report and it said there's a concern, <laughs> I don't care if it's germane to what he's doing or not. Should he not have gone back to the senior manager and said, hey, do we have a problem here? Well, maybe. I mean, I've read the report, and, and you know, it is not a screaming report. It, it, you know, it doesn't have a lot of exclamation marks in capital letters. They, they do discuss the situation. They recommend further testing. But if you look at the language, it, it's not, you know, they, they do use the phrase uh, significant, significantly below the, the standards that, uh, that, that should have applied. Um, so yes, if you if you read it with the knowledge that we have now, you would say it's jumping off the page. But if you read it in the context of 2013, not so much. It, it's not a screaming, uh, you know, uh, flashing red light kind of a report. It's very dry, uh, very factual. I mean, if you read it, it the information is there to be seen. But I'm just wondering how somebody in 2013 would would view that, especially since it appears they had multiple consultants working on this safety issue. Okay, but to put that in context, uh, in, in time and place, even back in 2013, there was at that point still uh, an unusual preponderance of accidents or collisions uh, or cars sliding off the road, uh, which, you know, put that onto the table and, and read that report in 2013, and you're thinking, well, maybe it is the road to a certain extent. Yes, although it's interesting as well, uh, if we go back to this 2017 situation where council uh, apparently were not at all uh, curious about $13 million worth of road repaving, and right after they passed that capital budget, uh, council then received uh, yet another safety report on the Red Hill Expressway, and it talked about nothing except cat's eyes, better signage, maybe some lighting down the road, uh, possibility of barriers, uh, rumble strips. So here's another report that is by yet another consultant that doesn't deal with the friction issue, and now we're into 2017. So it, it just seemed to me that, uh, with all, you know, were, were these consultants reporting to different members of the engineering staff? Were it's hard. It's hard for me to tell. I mean, it's such a large department. Uh, 
you know, one of the previous managers of that department said it was probably too big of a department to be properly supervised, and I think it probably cost him his job, but he was probably telling the truth. There's just a huge, uh, when I see all these consultants, and they, they seem to be passing each other in the night with with reports that seem to indicate that they don't know what the other consultant is doing, you, you start to wonder if the, if maybe this thing is just too big and got out of hand. Well, and how's that work anyway? I mean, does does one area of the department hire a consultant and then another hires another consultant? I mean, do, do they not speak? Do they not converse with each other to, to understand that maybe they're crossing each other's paths? Well, the consultants appear to be not conversing with each other. Now, whether internally uh, how that works, I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, like this trade when, uh, when uh, that study was not a particularly expensive study. It was thirty or $40,000. So you could, you know, somebody at a lower level in the hierarchy could probably authorize an expenditure of that size. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, one, one of the things this study may end up telling us is, is the, just the whole business of commissioning uh, these various consultants and who's coordinating them and is anybody coordinating them. You know, how does that all happen? I, I think that's going to end up being um, an interesting sidebar. Well, because we're, we're starting to get little tidbits of information that, that are head scratchers, frankly. And, uh, you know, I, I read the report about the cat's eyes and, and, and better lighting, et cetera, and, uh, which also included the fact that they said, by the way, there was no problem with the wildlife, et cetera. They, I don't know why they decided not to put the proper lighting at the top of the, the road. Uh, but now they're saying, oh, it's fine. We could have done that any time. Uh, and that's not what we were told at the time. And the cat's eyes are a good idea. But the contentious issue, John, is that one section of the road between what King Street and Barton, really. Uh, and that's where seemingly most of the accidents and, and collisions and, and deaths, sadly, are occurring. And there was little to no reference to that part of the road at all. No, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a bit of a mystery. I, I think we've got a, you know, I, I just hate to speculate on what we're going to end up learning. I I, I, what I do see here, I think, is uh, an attempt to manage the problem before it became a major public blowout, which it now is anyway. But that's what I think was probably going on here. Let's fix the problem uh, before we get into a major class action suit. Uh, I think that was probably, you know, if you were trying to figure out why things happened the way they did, that might, that might be a possible answer. Yeah, but look at how effective was that? Because now there is the possibility of a class action suit. Now this is blown up, and and everybody's got some concerns about this. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with the judicial review, and and how long that's going to take, and 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 what rocks they're going to be allowed. I, I I still, by the way, have a problem because I know council talked about that last week, and once again, I'm getting the impression that council seems to think that they can set the parameters for this review, what they should be looking at, and what they should be not. I I, I got a problem with that. I think they should have hands off altogether and let the judge go wherever they want. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I, I understand fully how uh, how these things are commissioned. I, I think they they do have to be given some kind of terms of reference uh, before they can start. But they should be pretty broad. Uh, there should be no restriction on uh, you know where they go and and what's made available to them. And I guess the whole purpose of a judicial review, as opposed to the ombudsman or somebody else, is simply that they do have subpoena power and they you know they can make people testify under oath which is uh you know certainly a, f a far more serious level of uh uh information gathering than you get uh, otherwise 
you know, I, I don't know. I mean, council seemed pretty eager to go ahead with this uh, review, and you would think that if there were people on council that, um, you know, that might have had information in the past that other councillors may not have had, you'd you'd think they'd be nervous. But I haven't heard any any sustained opposition to uh, this very thorough level of review. So, you know, I guess all we can do is let the chips fall where they may. Well, and to that end, like I say, we, there's no evidence about anybody in the political realm, the councillors, uh, having any information on that. But I do know that usually, uh, especially when you get into things what they call agenda review, which is a meeting between the, the chairman of that particular committee, in this case Public Works, and uh, the senior members of that staff, they usually meet about four or five days before the committee meeting and what they have an agenda review to basically say, here's what we're going to bring up, here's what we're going to talk about, and here's what happens. So there was a possibility for dialogue there, and I'm not suggesting there was, but you would have thought that an issue like this at some point might have been part of that conversation. Yeah, you you really would. I, that's why I'm I'm struggling with the idea that this thing was entirely contained to staff. I just think it's too big, uh, too much money involved uh, for their. Perhaps you're right. The the agenda review process, as opposed to an in camera meeting, that might have been a way to tip off uh, whoever was the chair of public works at the time. That uh, look, we've got a hot potato here. Uh, here's how we think it should be handled and uh, away we go from there. Uh, we'll hopefully find that out, but, um, you know, it's uh, the, the, as you said earlier uh, in your comment, I mean, there's just so many more questions than answers here that one's really reluctant as a journalist to try to be too predictive of what's going on here. If, if they're reticence to get down this road and, and to do the review, and there were some counselors that were pushing back on this initially, John, I think public pressure maybe finally got them into the fold, uh, if if their intended purpose there was to try to sh- avoid any shaming of any city staff, I think that, that horse has left the barn, too. Yeah, it is. And I always get nervous, uh, you know, when, when you know, it, it comes down to uh, an individual like that because uh, it just feels uh, it, it could be that, uh, you know, some sort of uh, misguided rogue behavior. But I always think that it's more likely to be scapegoating, quite frankly, and... Uh, I'm I'm just I'm I'm more than willing to to let you know the whole thing unfold before I make any judgment about any individual staff member. Uh, agreed. We'll see what happens over the day, uh, next couple of days. We, we have not seen any uh, s- political reaction to the story today, so uh, that will be fa- fascinating to see how they want to comment about this as well. John, thanks as always. Appreciate your input into this today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, there are concerns about the legal aid funding cut that uh, Ontario government is bringing forward with the budget and its impact on the poor and the vulnerable. Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, is with us here in studio. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the way. How are you doing? Hey, Bill. It's a bit of a gloomy day out there and gloomy for low-income residents of the province as well. Well, you know, it's interesting. A few days after, the initial reaction I saw from a lot of the mayors around the community after the budget, it was, well, there's some good stuff in here, transit funding, etc. Now that you start to analyze it and kind of read the small print on this, uh, they've cut back conservation flood control, uh, and I know a number of mayors, including ours, are concerned about that. 
But this this one here kind of cuts to the quick because uh, I'm going to recall the the promise that Ford made during the campaign that that no frontline services were going to be negatively impacted. He's essentially taking legal aid away from people that are are not able to to be able to pay for a lawyer. Oh, absolutely. And that will hurt uh, the poorest in our province. Uh, And and it's certainly not people just facing... uh, you know, problems with the criminal justice system. Uh, Legal aid is absolutely a critical foundation in our society to help people who simply can't afford legal representation if they're, say, facing eviction, if they're in uh, problems with the government, uh, say they're potentially losing their social assistance and because of an administrative error and, and they can't represent themselves. They they go to well, we've, uh, community Tom, we've legal We've been talking clinics. about rent tribunals. I mean, because they're in the news around here in a couple of different parts of the city. Uh, and we know, for instance, that oftentimes, you know, the, the holding companies, that they, they hire lawyers oh, yeah. to represent them and do the legal fight. If you can't get a lawyer to represent your interest, I mean, you're, you're probably going to lose. That's all there is to it. Oh, absolutely. And I... Our, you know, our, you've, you've been to those things. It's intimidating. It is. Uh, especially when they've, you know, this, you know, the lawyer from blah, blah, blah is, is representing this and you're trying to articulate your argument. You're not used to doing that. Mm-hmm. And it, you're nervous to begin with. That's why you need legal assistance for, for things such as this. And... Uh, it's it's not eliminated, but they've cut it significantly. Yeah, and there there are more than seventy community legal clinics across the province who who help people with access to justice, and and these are storefront operations uh, in communities right across the province where people go when when they have nowhere else to turn. So our organization, full disclosure, the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, works at a space within Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. So every morning I walk in through this reception area and pe- see people who are hurting, people who've been tried to turf, been turfed out by their landlords, people who maybe don't have any income coming in and they're not sure if they're going to end up homeless, injured workers who've been hurt on the jobs. And, you know, the, the community legal clinics and, and legal aid more generally are there to help people with nowhere else to turn. And, and so for the provincial government to cut funding by 30 percent is, is really disheartening. And it is reprehensible, I think. Uh, as a society, we need to protect individuals and protect that right to access to justice. There are, there's a ripple effect of this, too, uh, that, uh, that I know that some of the lawyers who do a, a fair bit of this work will talk about. Uh, it's going to jam up the courts again mm-hmm. uh, because these tribunals are not going to be effective. Uh, the things are going to get held over. They're going to be dismissed, which means they're going to have to t- go to trial. Uh, it's already an overburdened system to begin with. So, uh, I mean, this is another thing. I, I think the government's being very short-sighted here, not just for moral reasons, but they're going to make a bad situation in our judicial court system even worse. Absolutely. And we know... Uh, there, there's money to be saved. Uh, you know, this is a fairly low cost and effective way to represent people. And by cutting off the funding, it's really the government telling people that they don't count, they don't matter. And that is a terrible message to send to our population. Well, where do we go in a situation like this? I mean, because I, I know that some people are going to say, well, these are just, you know, we're going to get into the same thing that we heard back in the mid-1990s, that these people are undeserving. They just sit around, do nothing, and expect to get free legal advice for something like this happens. Yeah. Uh, but you see these people. You talk about real stories and, and real situations. 
and and you know, as as you've articulated, I mean, some of these things that, that people need the legal assistance for things like wrongful dismissal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe work work hours that are being allocated, uh, the unfairness that can go in there, uh, you know, uh, discrimination cases, any number of different things like this, and and you know, any Tom, Dick, or Harry can't just walk in off the street and said, "I'm going to start a legal action." You need legal advice. Exactly, and and it's also dependent on on people's incomes as well, and. We realize that people with means and people with resources can can get high-priced lawyers. And as you indicated earlier, um, if you're not able to afford legal representation, it, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to move forward uh, when you're seeking access to justice. And and so the legal aid funding issue, I think, is critical, absolutely critical um, to highlight because we know uh, – if if we're not going to protect the most vulnerable in our province, um, that says something I think pretty significant about the priorities of this government. And and so we need to we need to ensure people have that access to justice that they can ensure that their rights are preserved. And and we're not just talking legal rights; we're talking about people's housing, people's incomes, the ability to purchase food, um, the ability to stay healthy, to pr- get medication, um, and and these are basic, fundamental human decency rights. And and for the government to come out and and say they're going to slash legal aid's budget by thirty percent, it's just appalling. Well, the Ontario government uh, mandated that uh, this organization be in place uh, to provide legal assistance for low-income families, for f- families that are, are in, in dire circumstances. Uh, there is federal funding. We, we need to point that out, uh, but clearly not enough to be able to cover the, the caseload that, that exists now. No, exactly. And the uh, we, we know there's you know a lot of a, a lot of legal issues out there obviously um the the folks i work with the lawyers i work with they're passionate about their jobs they want to be there to protect uh protect the people they serve and and again these are they're representing people who have absolutely nowhere else to turn um oftentimes they're people who've been beaten down so much by society uh they don't think anybody will be there to protect them and um this group, uh, the, at least the the group of lawyers and community legal workers and support staff I know from Hamilton Community Legal Clinic are, are just some of the most passionate and caring people I've ever met. So it, it it's a wrongheaded decision by the provincial government. But in looking at this provincial budget overall, it, I think it's kind of par for the course because we also saw an announcement around a billion dollar decrease to social services representing, you know, services for some of the most vulnerable in our society, people on Ontario Works, who are already living in the very depths of poverty, are, are not going to be seeing any increase uh, in this budget. Uh, people on Ontario Disability Support Program, who've been living in deep poverty as well for, for decades now, uh, are not going to see any uh, in, any improvement in their situation. We know Food prices are going up. We know more and more people are using food banks. And as a matter of fact, 75% of all people using food banks are on provincial social assistance programs. So in a very real sense, um, this government is is foregoing its responsibility to help the people who, who need those programs and services the most. You've been doing this for a long time, uh, working with that, that, that element, working with legal clinics. I know earlier in your career. 
Why does this happen? I mean, why do governments, when they get into this austerity kick, always pick on the most vulnerable people and say, you know what, we're taking away from them? Yeah, it's and it's not all governments. Um, I, I think this particular government has a certain bias against, uh, against uh, this population. We've seen it time and time again over the last eight months now, I guess. Um, it started off with the basic income pilot project. And... Um, even though they promised during and canceling the minimum wage and in canceling yeah in canceling the minimum wage later on the um uh, let's start with basic income they promised during the election they would keep it they got elected and then barely a month after taking office they said no we don't like it we're going to uh, we're going to cancel it um which is you know their prerogative as as a government according to the courts but certainly ethically and morally it was wrong uh, to say they're going to do one thing during an election break a promise to 4,000 people who had counted on this income and then and then turn around and, and say, no, we're ending it. Um, the evaluators said it's not the right thing to do. The ethical review board said it's not the right thing to do. And the courts even said, uh, although we don't have the jurisdiction to overturn this decision, um, we think you do have legal remedy. And just this weekend as well in the budget, we saw... Uh, the indication that the government's going to bring in a statute to make it much, much more difficult for people uh, to bring legal action against the government in cases like this. By the retroactively. Way, yeah, retroactively, which is basically their attempt to try to kill this this class action against them about the basic income. Yeah, exactly. And and again, these are a group of people who are experiencing poverty. Uh, many of them were on Ontario Works and ODSP. They had nowhere else to turn. And so turn to passionate lawyers like Mike Perry up in Lindsay, who who took this case on pro bono. Um, and we have a, a great group, a great firm in Toronto that's uh, agreed to take this on, Cavaluzzo. And, you know, now the government's turning around and saying, sorry, we're changing the rules. You're not allowed to move forward with this. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is still moving forward. But it, again, this is just a message uh, that people who are living in poverty, people who don't have a voice in society, don't count with this government. But when you're in that circumstance, uh, that's the only recourse you have. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you, you you need legal assistance. You need somebody who's going to do this. And like you say, some people have taken up the banner for them, especially on the Basic Income Project. Uh, and got a favorable ruling. Uh, it's it's not a decision right now, but I mean, clearly that sent a red flag up to the government, and they just basically, they, as you mentioned, the, the the part of the budget in there that was talking about this basically says we don't think you should, should be able to sue the government. Uh, and and the double standard here is 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 obvious because <laughs> as they say that, twenty four hours later, there they are in a Toronto courtroom suing the federal government. Yeah. So it's okay if they do it but on the they carbon don't want tax. It, they, yeah. they don't want anybody else doing it to them. Yeah, and it it is hip- hypocritical, absolutely. Um, and and again, it just goes to show that uh, if, if you're if you're of means, if you have the power, uh, the rules are different for you, and and so. Th- it's absolutely unfortunate that uh, the government is moving in this direction, but it's not too late to change. They can uh, they can reverse uh, they can reverse course. They can look at improving situations for people, uh, low income Ontarians, particularly when it comes to social assistance, because without that uh, even one or two percent increase this year, uh, people are falling further and further behind. We know food prices are going up three, four, five percent annually. And, and so as a result, 
we, we've seen rents increasing as well, particularly here in Hamilton. Uh, One-bedroom apartments going for $1,100, $1,200 on average now. Um, when somebody's only getting uh, $766 a month on Ontario Works, the math is impossible. Uh, it, it will result in homelessness for many people. It will result in hunger and poor health. And this government's responsible. Well, they've got a responsibility to do something about it. And, and you know, when they make decisions like this, it just seems as if they could. These guys don't usually make, make much of a squawk. We, we just pick on them. Uh, if we did this to wealthy people, uh, they've got the means to fight us all the way down the line on this. So it's it's not for the people. I mean, that's that's the most hypocritical aspect of this whole thing. They're basically turning their, their attention and turning their, their guns right now on the most vulnerable people here and simply saying, well, you're gonna, we're going to do this budget and this deficit thing, but we're going to do it on your back. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've already seen where the government's priorities priorities lie, you know, in, in cheap beer, in, in tailgating parties, um, in, in stickers on gas pumps. Uh, you know, these are, this is imagery, um, but what's really happening in society right now are people are falling further and further behind, particularly those on the lower end of the income spectrum. And unless we get some real policy solutions in place, and we had some of them, we had, we were testing the idea of basic income. We saw the success of the minimum wage increase um, on jobs uh, because Ontario saw phenomenal job growth between uh, January of last year and January of this year uh, when we increased to a $14 minimum wage. Um, and yet the government chose not to look at the evidence, decided to, to cancel a further increase to $15. And, and as a result, low-income workers who are you know, working, the working poor and, and maybe cobbling together several part-time jobs to trying to make ends meet for themselves and their families are, are not able to move forward. And unless we can address as a society this deep, deep inequality, things are only going to get worse. Yeah, and uh, I, I know we only got about 20 seconds left here. Uh, this We've seen this show before, by the way, uh, because this impacts municipalities, because as these problems of homelessness and poor health uh, start to magnify themselves, uh, it falls to the property taxpayers of each and every one of those municipalities. So there's cause and effect here that we need to consider. Tom, as always, thanks so much for coming in today. Great to get your perspective on this. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.